0: Listening to the Informal Bible Study, a casual and applicational look at the Scriptures. I'm John Stonge, and it's great to have you with us today. Before we take a look at our scripture today, I'd like to invite you to stop by our website, which is desirejesus.com. And on our website, you'll find links to our bookstore, links to both of our podcasts, our blog, and a link where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Each Tuesday, I send out a newsletter with a word of encouragement and some content to help you in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to receive that each week in your inbox, it's free. All you need to do is just sign up on the website, desirejesus.com. You'll see the newsletter tab. Just click it, and we'll be happy to add you to the email list. Now let's take a look at today's scripture. Well, good morning again. It's good to see everybody. Uh, last week we started a series in the book of Joel. I don't know if Joel's a book of the Bible that you've had the opportunity to spend a lot of time studying or reading. I think it tends to be one of the books of the Bible that that tends to fall beneath the radar. It tends to be one of those books of the Bible that we come across and we recognize that it's in there, but it's not always something that we actually spend a whole lot of time studying. And so sometimes these are some of my favorite books of the Bible to actually emphasize during our sermon study here Uh, On Sunday mornings, and this morning we're in the second half of Joel chapter one, and we're going to be talking about the fact that there are seasons of life when our only option is to humble ourselves and pray. So, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Joel chapter one, Uh, we're in verse. We're starting with verse thirteen today. Joel chapter one, starting with verse thirteen, and this is what it states in uh, Joel one, starting with verse thirteen. It says this. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. "'Alas for the day! For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan!' The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to gather together today and to study it together and to worship you as we do so. And Lord, we pray that you'd help our hearts and our minds uh, to be open to what you have in store for us here. We pray that we would understand the truth of your word and that by your grace we would apply it to our day-to-day lives. So we thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be able to look at it together, and we commit this time to your care. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So culturally and personally, I, I think probably most of us would agree with this, but what we, what, one of the things we tend to value culturally and again personally tends to be self Reliance. That tends to be something that we applaud people when they are self-reliant. When our children get to a stage where they become a bit more self-reliant, we tend to celebrate that. When, when people we know are self-reliant, we tend to celebrate that. Some of our favorite cultural stories have to do with self-reliance. Many of you know of my affinity for uh, fried forms of chicken. So, I tend to, uh, you know, really gravitate towards stories of those who, who make it and produce it. Do you ever hear of Colonel Sanders? You know who that is, right? The founder of KFC. Do you know his story? Throughout the course of his life he went from basically we would say at least you know socially or culturally it seemed like he was going from failure to failure to failure to failure until he got to age 65. So up to that point he had he had conflicts in his home, conflicts with employment, all sorts of things that that he felt were keeping him uh, a bit downtrodden. And at age 65 he got to a spot and he was kind of thinking, all right, is is this it? Like is this it? And he got some sort of uh, check from the government for a hundred-some dollars. And he thought, all right, somehow I'm supposed to subsist off of this check for a hundred-some dollars. And he thought, I got, I have to do more than this. He was 65 years old, and he, and he started thinking to himself, "What, what do I do? What can I do? I'm at the age here where I have technically, culturally retired. What can I do? And he thought, well, the only thing I seem to do pretty well is make fried chicken. So I'm just going to make fried chicken. And he went just through his neighborhood, selling it door to door. Now, people try and sell things door to door in my neighborhood. No one has ever tried to sell me fried chicken, but they would have a customer if they did. And he apparently was aware of that in his own neighborhood, and people loved it. And from age 65 up to age 88, he went from feeling like he was financially destitute to becoming a multi-millionaire and a name that we all recognize. Starting at age 65. And so we look at that and we applaud that and we say, wow, that's a a great example of somebody who really picked themselves up in the midst of a season where they were feeling downtrodden. And I think it's nice to hear that that story ends well, but what do you do when you're still living through the messy parts of your life story? Because sometimes it's not just as simple as picking yourself up and trying something new Or attempting a new idea. Oftentimes it's much more complicated than that. Sometimes we get to a spot in life where we literally run out of options. At least any option we can consider or come up with our own thinking. So what do you do when you hit that wall? You know, when you've run out of options, when there's no other option, how should we respond when we can't pick ourselves up, when we can't change our circumstances, when we can't escape our problems? Well, when those seasons come, and by the way, those seasons come for all of us, And sometimes those seasons come in stages where you have it at one season, and then you think you've picked yourself back up, and then you discover, no, I'm right back in that spot. The truth is when those moments come or when those seasons come, we really only have one primary option. And our best option, and the option we should have considered right at the beginning, is to humble ourselves and to pray, to seek God's intervention on our behalf instead of relying on our own wisdom. Instead of relying on our own strength to try and fix all of these issues, we have the option to seek the Lord's intervention. We have the option to trust in Him to do miraculous things for us, or to change our attitude toward the things that we're going through, because that's certainly an option as well. And when you look at Joel chapter 1, when you look at these verses here, the second half of the chapter we come back to the people of Judah that we started looking at last week and some of the things that they were going through. And basically, they were at a moment where all they could do, where their only option was to humble themselves and pray. And when that's your only option, when that's the spot that you're in, what do you do? Well, some of the things that we're given here by way of example is this. First off, invite others to cry out to God together with you. Invite others to cry out together together. Uh, to God with you. Look at what it says in verses 13 and 14. It says this. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in. Pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house Now, let's pause there for just a moment. In the culture of Judah and ancient Israel, you have the priests who played a pivotal role of influence in that context. And as we know from looking at Scripture, the Lord raised them up and established their lineage with the goal that they minister to the people, but also that they represent the people before the Lord. And so they were given many opportunities to help keep the hearts of the people in the right place, through facilitating the sacrificial system, through religious feasts, and also through special days of worship. So these were the type of things that the priests would oversee or help facilitate. Now imagine serving in that particular role during the time of calamity that the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, were presently experiencing as Joel's writing these things down. As I mentioned last week when we began looking at this, they had gone through a season now where locusts had come through like a plague and they had completely destroyed their crops. Their economy was ruined. Their animals were now dying. Their families were suffering. And now as a byproduct of all that was going on, the people would no longer have the basic items that they would need for the, the, the ways in which they worshiped under the sacrificial system of the old covenant. So they didn't have grain. They didn't have drink. These things that they could pre- present as, as, as offerings, as, uh, you know, as tools that aided them in the context of their worship. And they were quickly running out of animals as well. These things that would be offered as sacrifices under the sacrificial system that they lived under. So what that means is that in addition to their physical and their financial and their social problems, they're now experiencing, in a way that's very real right before their eyes, spiritual problems. So it's all coming to a head. Every area of their life, nothing seems like it's working out. It all seems like it's crumbling. It all seems like it's collapsing all around them. So what's left to do in a moment like that? I bring that up because it's very possible that the situation that they were in at this present time, as Joel is referencing these things, it wouldn't surprise me if there's a season of your life where you felt very much like the people of Judah felt like in the midst of this context. Where it felt like every single area of your life or every single facet of your life was being impacted by what was going on. When it all felt like it was changing all at once. Or when it all felt like it was collapsing All at once. So, what did the Lord do for you when you were in the midst of the last season that looked like that, when He did the favor for you of stripping away all the things that you used to trust in or treasure more than Him? Because isn't that the type of pruning that He does when we go through seasons like that? When you get to the spot where you realize the only option I have left is to humble myself and pray. And in the midst of that, it doesn't really feel like a favor. But God's, in fact, doing us a favor in moments like that by reminding us that He is sufficient for what we need. And He takes away the things that we used to treasure, and He takes away the things that we used to trust, and He gives us a fresh new opportunity to clean the slate and realize that He's sufficient. And sometimes it takes a, a, a season of desperation like that to remind us of our need To cry out to the Lord. So you see in this portion of Scripture, you have the people being invited to cry out to God together. To cry out to the Lord together in prayer. And sometimes it takes a season like that to remind us to cry out to the Lord. I know for me, when everything is going perfectly fine, I don't find myself praying with the same sort of desperation that I find myself praying when things aren't going fine. When I feel like things are outside of my control. The desperation in my prayers is very different in both of those seasons. Now, here's a trivia question for you that I, I threw out to my family last night. We were sitting around the family room, and I'm going I'm to give some suggestions. They had some good answers for this that, that are in addition to the things that I'll suggest. But my question is this. God knows all things, and He knows what you need and what I need, even before we pray. And He knows the things that we're even going to pray about. So why does he bother asking us to pray? Why bother asking us to pray if he already knows what we need, already knows the answers, has the whole thing figured out, why does he invite us to pray? Do you ever ask yourself questions like that? Do you ever ponder things like that? If God knows everything, why is he asking me to ask stuff? Why is he asking me to to come before him and pray? You know, what's the idea? So my family had different suggestions. One of the good suggestions was, well, this is an aspect of relationship. Um, you know, I thought that was a real good answer. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, with R.A. Torrey. I don't know if you've ever heard that name, but he's written plenty of things back in the day. But R.A. Torrey had something very useful that I read uh, some time ago that pointed out reasons that Scripture gives why the Lord invites us to come before Him in prayer even though He already knows what we need before He asks Him. Or before we ask Him. And these are the four suggestions that Tory lists that are found in Scripture. He says, first of all, one of the reasons the Lord invites us to pray, even though He already knows what we're going to ask, is because there's a devil. And prayer is a God-appointed way to resist the devil. Thought, alright, that's a good answer. Because there is a devil. And prayer is a God-appointed way to resist him. A second suggestion he gives is this. Because prayer is God's way for us to obtain what we need from Him. That's the means that the Lord has ordained when you look through Scripture. It's God's way for us to obtain what we need from Him. And Scripture tells us sometimes we don't have because we don't ask. Third thing he suggests is this, because prayer is the means God has appointed for us to find grace in time, or find grace to help in time of need, like it tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that it's the appointed way that God has, has given to us to find grace to help in time of need. A fourth suggestion that Tory lists is this. He says, because prayer with thanksgiving is God's way for us to obtain freedom from anxiety and to receive the peace of God, like it tells us in Philippians chapter 4. So yes, God already knows what we need before we ask Him, But he has ordained that prayer be a means by which, through our relationship with him, we have access to these things. And so Joel speaks, as as the Lord's speaking through him, he speaks to the spiritual leadership of Judah, living during this time of calamity, living during this time of plague, living during this time of of sorrow. And his counsel to the spiritual leadership in Judah was to call a fast. He says, call a fast. Assemble the people at the temple and cry out to the Lord together. That's your option. That's the only option you really have in this moment. Cry out to the Lord together. This was a moment for them to collectively humble themselves and pray because their issues were too big to be handled by earthly means or temporary solutions. Now, I'll say this. There have been multiple seasons in my life when the Lord has humbled me And when He's freed me from my self-reliance, and that's one of the things that sometimes I celebrate in my life and other times I mourn because I realize that while in certain moments that can seem like a great thing uh, to to exhibit some level of self-reliance, that should never take the place of our dependence on the Lord Himself. And so I'm actually grateful for the seasons. Not that I'm looking for the Lord to do this repeatedly to me, right? Because it's painful to go through, but He knows when we need it. But I'm grateful in retrospect, even though it was painful in the season to go through, for the times when the Lord's humbled me and freed me from my self-reliance and assured me that the most effective thing I could do was to seek His help in prayer. And the truth is, it's actually, in a wonderful way, a strange relief when you get to that point. Isn't it when, you, when you've when you exhausted yourself, when you've kept yourself up at night, when you've dealt with all kinds of anxiety, when you've had these things floating around your mind for a long time, and then you finally get to that breaking point when you say, you know what, the only thing that I could do that's really going to make a difference in this context, it's not going to be worrying about it any longer. It's just saying, Lord, I surrender. I give this entire thing over to You. And I ask for Your miraculous intervention to either change my circumstances or change my attitude toward them. And here you have Joel encouraging the spiritual leadership of Judah to invite the people of Judah to come before the Lord with that kind of humility, to come before the Lord and pray. Now there's something else that this portion of scripture brings up that I think is worth noting, and that's this, that we need to also admit that God's patience doesn't mean he was sleeping. His patience doesn't mean he was sleeping. Look at verse 15 down to verse 18. It says, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And by the way, that phrase, the day of the Lord, we see this repeatedly here in this book. But he says, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan! the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. Now again, let's pause there for just a moment. So you see that phrase, the day of the Lord. I pointed it out to us just a second ago, but I even mentioned last week that we'd be seeing this repeatedly as we go through the book of Joel. So the concept of the day of the Lord as it's spoken here. Something that, that it, it appears multiple times here in Joel's book, uh, and the catastrophic events here that we have taking place in Judah were actually a foretaste of what that was going to look like. So they're a, a pre-picture, a glimpse of what that was going to look like. And you have Joel speaking of the day of the Lord as being near speaks of the day of the Lord as being near. And he says in these verses that there will be destruction on that day. It doesn't sound very pretty, right? Destruction on that day, that food would be cut off, that joy and gladness would seem fleeting, uh, that both crops and livestock would suffer. That does not sound very pretty. But that prophecy is very consistent with the message that the Lord's been proclaiming through His prophets throughout the course of human history that that day is coming. Scripture tells us that there will be a time when the world will be held accountable for its rebellion against God. And every single day brings us one day closer to that prophecy being fulfilled. Every single day brings us one day closer to that prophecy coming to pass, to it being fulfilled. And yet there are many people that don't even believe that that's going to take place. There are many people that believe that this earth will never be held accountable for its rebellion against the Lord. And I think, you know, when you, when you look at it, you know, we're in a spot here where because God has been patient with us, because God has given us time to repent, there are those who believe that the patience of God means that God is either sleeping, or He's not paying attention, or maybe He just doesn't even exist. But it would be a big mistake for us to confuse God's patience with slumber. There's a very big difference between the two. Patience and slumber. Very different things. Let me show you several portions of Scripture that address these concepts. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it tells us this. It says, "...the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish." But, the, but that all should reach repentance. In 2 Peter 3.9 we're told that. Isn't that a beautiful portion of Scripture? That the Lord shows us patience. And what is He doing in the midst of this season of His patience? And by the way, this season of His patience comes to an end. But while we're in the midst of it, what is He giving us the opportunity to do? Well, the Scripture tells us He's, he's giving us the opportunity to repent. To turn from ourselves, to turn from our wickedness, to turn from our self-faith or our, our self-belief, and to trust in Him to repent, to come to faith in Him. I like what it tells us in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. There it says this, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord... So we see this concept again, the day of the Lord. But again, it says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So we're in the midst of this season of God's patience. Yet Scripture tells us that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night, that this season of patience comes to an abrupt and surprise end. When those who thought that God was slumbering or not paying attention all of a sudden realize He wasn't failing to pay attention. He wasn't slumbering. He wasn't ignoring us. He was being kind to us. He was being patient with us. Isn't it amazing to think how patient God has been with us as individuals, but also how patient He's been with us even culturally? You know, when you look at all the ways that humanity just kind of thumbs their nose toward God, it says, Lord, here's what you say but I don't really believe what you say or that you even exist. And so I'm going to do my own thing. And if this wasn't wicked enough, I'm going to add to my wickedness. And if this wasn't something that 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 you know that I shouldn't have welcomed in the past, well, I'm going to welcome it now. And this is going to be the way life goes from now on because I don't think you're ever going to do anything about it, and I don't think that you even exist. And yet Scripture tells us what? For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then in Matthew 24, verse 21, it says this, For then there, there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. So Scripture tells us at that, that time, that day of the Lord that Joel is speaking about here, prophetically, and using this example of this locust plague as an example of, he's saying, listen, the big day of the Lord is coming, this time when God is ultimately going to deal with the rebellion and the disbelief of humanity, that day is coming when the wrath of God is going to be unleashed upon sin and disbelief. Aren't you glad that the story doesn't end there? I always think when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, wouldn't it be entertaining and cruel to end the message right there? Although maybe, maybe it would be good to do like cliffhangers during the summer when everyone's on vacation. It's like, no, and then cut off the live stream right now. Right? It's like, what happens next? Well, the good news is, there is a good outcome for those who trust in Christ. But if the story ended right there, just with the wrath of God, that would be utterly tragic for us because we are deserving of the wrath of God. But yet, thankfully, what does Scripture assure us of? Scripture assures us that Jesus took the righteous wrath of the Father upon Himself. He took the wrath that was supposed to come to us, the wrath that we were currently under, and He took it upon Himself so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be declared righteous in the eyes of God. Scripture tells us that when we trust in Jesus Christ, who took our sin, who took our condemnation upon Himself, took the wrath of God upon Himself, that the wrath of God is then removed from being upon us. How would you like to enter into eternity with the wrath of God upon you or removed from you? How would you like to stand before God with his ra- as, as an object of His wrath or as an object of His mercy? Those are really the only two options, right? We're either going to stand before Him under His wrath or under His mercy. I would rather experience the mercy. And we're offered the mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. The wrath is removed from you if you trust in Christ. I love what we're told in John 3.36. It says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is why it's so critical that we tell others of their need for Christ. Because you and I have people in our lives, people in our families, people in our neighborhoods, people that we know and love who are still under the wrath of God of God. But Scripture reminds us that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And that faith is evidenced by obedience. We believe in the Son, the wrath that we were once under is removed and it's replaced with mercy. The day of the Lord is coming, but those who have received new life in Christ are not Under the wrath of God. In Christ we are forgiven. In Christ we are cleansed of our unrighteousness. In Christ we have hope. In Christ we have confident access to the Father, knowing that He delights in welcoming His family into His presence. So we need to admit that God's patience doesn't mean He was sleeping, it just means He was giving us time so that He could open our eyes. And we could repent. Well, the Scripture brings up one other thing that I want to point out to us today, and that's this. Recognize that the Lord's the solution. Recognize that it's the Lord that's the solution. Look at verses 19 and 20 of Joel 1. It says this, To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So uh, last summer, so this is a year ago, I was talking to my father-in-law. Um, we uh, have kind of made it part of our pattern that during the summer we go and visit my wife's family, but they don't live super close by, so we try and make the most of the visit. And uh, it takes about seven, eight hours for us to get there from here, and so we we're sitting down and talking. Uh, my father-in-law is retired now, but during his career he was a food chemist. And he worked for a food production plant. And uh, he came up with all sorts of ways to, to you know, produce food safely and cleanly and, and uh, to make sure that it made it to market safe to eat. And one of the things that they kind of specialized at the plant that he worked at was peanut butter. And the cool thing about that... Now, they also produce ketchup. So sometimes downtown... Uh, And they also produced dog food there, didn't they, at one point? No? Okay, what was that that I'm thinking of? You have to tell me later. Different company, but nearby, right? Okay, that's why I thought of that. But whatever was being produced in town, um, the town smelled like that day. So you had Ketchup Day. So for some people, they'd be like, ah, it's Ketchup Day. Josh and I had cheesesteaks the other night. Nolan, you were there. Josh's big question for me was, do we have enough ketchup? If not, I need to bring some, right? He likes the ketchup. So Josh, you would have liked ketchup day, all right? But they also had peanut butter day. And so the town, and then the other plant apparently would have dog food day. Don't visit, go to another town on that day. Um, but the but peanut butter day made the town smell like peanut butter. Wouldn't that be glorious? Like wouldn't you just kind of, regardless of the weather, it's near Buffalo, so sometimes the weather would be miserable, but wouldn't you just kind of want to walk through town and just enjoy life on peanut butter day? Right You just walk through life and just be like, "This is glorious. Those of you with peanut allergies are like, "Do you want me to die right in front of you? This is not glorious all right for those of you without it, but anyway, so they 'd produce peanut butter, and you know that so during the course of my lifetime I, I watched this take place. Uh, things didn 't have safety seals when I was a child they didn 't have safety seals on things, so here in the store, you just open it up, and there 's the product right before you and in In time, we learned it's probably a good idea you put a safety seal on things. So when you open your peanut butter, picture this now. It's a a very happy moment for all of us in our homes. Amen. You open it up, and you've got that foil seal, right? You've got that foil seal, and how do you tell if it's working? You squeeze it a little bit, and it bubbles up, right? You give it a little squeeze, and it bubbles up, and it shows you that the peanut butter is sealed. Well, my father-in-law... He's retired now, but there are companies that hire him to consult. And one of the companies that he was working for, consulting for... All night long, they were trying to produce peanut butter, but they were noticing that the safety seals were not adhering to the jars. And they couldn't figure out why the safety seals were not adhering to the jars. Every batch they put through, the safety seals wouldn't adhere. And they're trying all throughout the night because they had a shipment that had to go out and it was going to cost them a lot of money if they didn't get this fixed because it was all going to come back if those safety seals didn't bubble when you squeeze the side of the jar. And so my father-in-law got a call at 5 a.m. in the morning an apologetic call from the person running the plant saying, we're very sorry to call you this early, but we were hoping that if we waited till at least five, it wouldn't be ridiculous. But we've been going all throughout the night, and we can't get the label, or we can't get the safety seal to adhere to the jar. Do you have a suggestion? We've tried everything. We can't figure out a solution to this. And he said, oh, I've seen that problem a hundred times. All you need to do is this, this. And this. And so they went, took his suggestions, and it worked. And all of a sudden, every, all the seals were adhering and everything was fine. And they were rejoicing and they were happy. And I looked at that and I, I basically, I, I, you know, looking at my father-in-law, I was like, alright, they are going to hire you to consult for the rest of your life. You're going to be on their payroll for the rest of your life. You realize that. And he's like, I do kind of realize that. That's a good thing, right? That's a good gig in retirement. He figured out the solution. He understood what they needed to do. Then you look at a portion of Scripture like we're looking at today. It's kind of dreary. And when you look at what they were dealing with, the people of, of Judah, they didn't feel like they had a solution. The fire of the sun had devoured their pastures. The trees, picture this context, right? There's no walking through a beautiful town smelling peanut butter, right? The trees are now leafless and burned up. The water brooks were dry. The animals are panting in thirst. This is the context of their day-to-day life. Their their situation had become essentially as dire as it could get. No farmer, no priest, no politician could solve this problem. So what does Joel do? He calls out to the Lord. That's the solution. The Lord is the solution. He calls out to the Lord. The Lord alone could solve this problem. The Lord alone was the only solution. Can I share with you a portion of Scripture that I hope you'll jot the reference down or at least commit it to memory? It's something that I think can encourage you in the midst of the things that you're dealing with. Oh, you know what? Did I skip it? I'm going to read it to you from uh, from my notes here. I, I thought I put a slide up there for you. That's an advanced slide. I'll show you that one next. But in Psalm 120, verse 1, Psalm 120, verse 1, says this, I took my troubles to the Lord. I cried out to Him, and He answered my prayer. Let me reread that. Psalm 120, verse 1. I took my troubles to the Lord. I cried out to Him, and He answered my prayer. Do we believe that we could take our troubles to the Lord, that the Lord is the solution, that we could bring our troubles before Him, that we could cry out to Him, that it could be a messy experience, that it doesn't have to be neat and tidy, that you could cry out to the Lord if that's what the Lord's impressing upon your heart to do, and that He delights to answer the prayers of His children? Again, in Psalm 120, verse 1, I took my troubles to the Lord, I cried out to Him, and He answered my prayer. How often in life do we become convinced that something or someone less than the Lord Jesus Christ can solve the deepest longings of our souls? Don't we do that way too often? So often we think that someone or something less than the Lord Jesus Christ can solve the deepest longings of our lives. So continue, or just consider this for a second. The deepest longings of your soul, the deepest longings of your heart, what are they? Well, we long for sustenance. We long for companionship, we long for purpose, we long for forgiveness, we long for mercy. These are things that our hearts long for when you analyze the deepest longings of your soul. And the only permanent solution for all of those things is Jesus Himself. And until we become convinced that Christ Himself is the solution, we will chase after one disappointment after another. Because we'll be convinced that those disappointing things can satisfy the deepest longing of our souls. And then we start to realize, as Scripture reveals it to us, that the Lord is the solution. Only Christ is the one that could satisfy these deepest longings. And we shouldn't waste our time chasing after one disappointment after another. Chasing after disappointment is not my idea of a good life. But finding joy, finding satisfaction, finding peace in Jesus Christ... Most certainly is. Now, this is a scripture I brought up on the screen just a moment ago, but in John sixteen thirty three, it says this. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Please notice what Christ is saying there and analyze this in regard to the solutions that we often run to. How often do we think that a worldly solution is going to solve the longings of our soul. And so we try and try and try and try to satisfy those longings with something of the world. And what does Christ tell us? In the world you'll have tribulation. Well, maybe I should use more of the world as the solution this time. Maybe I just didn't use the right mix. Or maybe I didn't find the right shade of of whatever the thing was that I was trying to look for. And Christ says, no, in the world you'll have tribulation. Well, how's my heart going to find peace? Well, what does Christ say? I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That's where our peace comes from, in Jesus Christ. Not from the world. From the world we have tribulation. From Christ we have peace. That's what he's trying to convince our hearts of, that he is the solution. So let me say this as we finish up. I don't know what kind of season you're in the midst of right now. But if you've been trying every kind of solution that you can think of, and you haven't been able to solve your problems in your own strength, Maybe it's time to admit that the only real option you have is to humble yourself and pray like Joel reminded the people of Judah that they had that need. And I believe it's a blessing for us to be reminded of that need as well. In the midst of whatever we face, so whatever you're facing, whatever I'm facing, whatever those who call upon the Lord are facing, in the midst of whatever we're facing, our hearts will only find lasting peace when we find it through Christ. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we find the peace that we're looking for. He's the solution. He's the source of our help. He's the reliever of our burdens. And the longer we walk with Him, the less time it takes us to realize that He's not only our last option when we run out of ideas, but He's also our first option and our best option in the midst of any season. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and your care and your love and your mercy and for reminding us that you are ultimately the solution that we need in the midst of the things that we're dealing with. Lord, we deal with so much adversity. We deal with so much calamity. We deal, we deal with so many things internally that at times we don't want to tell others about the things that we're dealing with because we feel like we'd maybe be embarrassed or ashamed to even admit our lack of peace at times. But Lord, we recognize as we look at Your Word that peace is ultimately found through You. That You are the source of our peace. That You are the source of our comfort. So Lord Jesus, we pray that we would trust in You completely. And we pray that we would remember the lessons that You've taught us as we look through this portion of Joel. That there is joy and there is release and there is relief when we get to the point when we humbly admit that the best thing and the only option we really have is to pray. So we come before you now and we seek your intervention in our lives. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Informal Bible Study. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, we'd invite you to stop by our website, which is desirejesus.com, And if you're not on our newsletter list, be sure to click the link to sign up right there on the front page of the website. But that's it for us today. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week, and we look forward to catching up with you again right here next Monday. Take care. The love of God is immeasurable, it's unchanging, it's indescribable. Because God loves you so much, you can sleep through the night in peace. With Abide Bible Sleep Meditation, you can fall asleep fast with relaxing sleep stories based on scripture. To start listening now, go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Abide Bible Sleep Meditation. You can also download the Abide app for more biblical meditations at abide.com.